Part 1, Section 5 of My Mortal Enemy by Willa Cather. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Part 1, Section 5 During the week between Christmas and New Year's Day, I was with Mrs. Henshaw a great deal, but we were seldom alone. It was the season of calls and visits, and she said that meeting so many people would certainly improve my manners and my English. She hated my careless, slangy Western speech. Her friends, I found, were of two kinds, artistic people, actors, musicians, literary men, with whom she was always at her best because she admired them, and another group whom she called her moneyed friends. She seemed to like the word, and these she cultivated, she told me, on Oswald's account. He is the sort of man who does well in business only if he has the incentive of friendships. He doesn't properly belong in business. We never speak of it, but I'm sure he hates it. He went into an office only because we were young and terribly in love and had to be married. The business friends seemed to be nearly all Germans, on Sunday we called at half a dozen or more big houses. I remember very large rooms, much upholstered and furnished, walls hung with large paintings in massive frames, and many stiff, dumpy little sofas in which the women sat two and two, while the men stood about the refreshment tables, drinking champagne and coffee and smoking fat black cigars. Among these people, Mrs. Myra took on her loftiest and most challenging manner. I could see that some of the women were quite afraid of her. They were in great haste to rush refreshments to her and looked troubled when she refused anything. They addressed her in German and profusely complimented her upon the way she spoke it. We had a carriage that afternoon, and Myra was dressed in her best making an especial effort on Oswald's account. But the rich and powerful irritated her. Their solemnity was too much for her sense of humor. There was a biting edge to her sarcasm, a curl about the corners of her mouth that was never there when she was with people whose personality charmed her. I had one long, delightful afternoon alone with Mrs. Henshaw in Central Park. We walked for miles, stopped to watch the skating, and finally had tea at the casino, where she told me about some of the singers and actors I would meet at her apartment on New Year's Eve. Her account of her friends was often more interesting to me than the people themselves. After tea she hailed a hansom and asked the man to drive us about the park a little, as a fine sunset was coming on. We were jogging happily along under the elms, watching the light change on the crusted snow, when a carriage passed from which a handsome woman leaned out and waved to us. Mrs. Henshaw bowed stiffly with a condescending smile. "'There, Nellie,' she exclaimed, "'that's the last woman I'd care to have splashing past me, and me in a handsome cab.' I glimpsed what seemed to me insane ambition. My aunt was always thanking God that the Henshaws got along as well as they did, and worrying because she felt sure Oswald wasn't saving anything. And here Mrs. Myra was, wishing for a carriage, with stables and a house and servants, and all that went with a carriage. 
All the way home she kept her scornful expression, holding her head high and sniffing the purple air from side to side as we drove down Fifth Avenue. When we alighted before her door, she paid the driver and gave him such a large fee that he snatched off his hat and said twice, "'Thank you, thank you, my lady.' She dismissed him with a smile and a nod. "'All the same,' she whispered to me as she fitted her latchkey. "'It's very nasty being poor.' That week Mrs. Henshaw took me to see a dear friend of hers, Anne Allward, the poet. She was a girl who had come to New York only a few years before, had won the admiration of men of letters, and was now dying of tuberculosis in her early twenties. Mrs. Henshaw had given me a book of her poems to read, saying, I want you to see her so that you can remember her in after years, and I want her to see you so that we can talk you over. Miss Allward lived with her mother in a small flat overlooking the East River, and we found her in a bath chair, lying in the sun and watching the river boats go by. Her study was a delightful place that morning, full of flowers and plants and baskets of fruit that had been sent her for Christmas. But it was Myra Henshaw herself who made that visit so memorably gay. Never had I seen her so brilliant and strangely charming as she was in that sunlit study up under the roofs. Their talk quite took my breath away. They said such exciting, such fantastic things about people, books, music, anything. They seemed to speak together a kind of highly flavored special language. As we were walking home, she tried to tell me more about Miss Allward, but tenderness for her friend and bitter rebellion at her fate choked her voice. She suffered physical anguish for that poor girl. My aunt often said that Myra was incorrigibly extravagant, but I saw that her chief extravagance was in caring for so many people and in caring for them so much. When she but mentioned the name of someone whom she admired, one got an instant impression that the person must be wonderful. Her voice invested the name with a sort of grace. When she liked people, she always called them by name a great many times in talking to them, and she enunciated the name, no matter how commonplace, in a penetrating way, without hurrying over it or slurring it. And this, accompanied by her singularly direct gaze, had a curious effect. When she addressed Aunt Lydia, for instance, she seemed to be speaking to a person deeper down than the blurred, taken-for-granted image of my aunt that I saw every day, and for a moment my aunt became more individual, less matter-of-fact to me. I had noticed this peculiar effect of Myra's look and vocative when I first met her in Parthia, where her manner of addressing my relatives had made them all seem a little more attractive to me. One afternoon, when we were at a matinee, I noticed in a loge a young man who looked very much like the photographs of a story-writer popular at that time. I asked Mrs. Henshaw whether it could be he. She looked in the direction I indicated, then looked quickly away again. "'Yes, it's he.' He used to be a friend of mine. That's a sad phrase, isn't it? 
but there was a time when he could have stood by Oswald in a difficulty, and he didn't. He passed it up. Wasn't there. I've never forgiven him. I regretted having noticed the man in the loge, for all the rest of the afternoon I could feel the bitterness working in her. I knew that she was suffering. The scene on the stage was obliterated for her. The drama was in her mind. She was going over it all again, arguing, accusing, denouncing. As we left the theater, she sighed. Oh, Nellie, I wish you hadn't seen him. It's all very well to tell us to forgive our enemies. Our enemies can never hurt us very much. But, oh, what about forgiving our friends? She beat on her fur collar with her two gloved hands. That's where the rub comes. The Henshaws always gave a party on New Year's Eve. That year most of the guests were stage people. Some of them, in order to get there before midnight, came with traces of makeup still on their faces. I remember old Jefferson de Angelet arrived in his last act wig, carrying his plumed hat. During the supper his painted eyebrows spread and came down over his eyes like a veil. Most of them are dead now, but it was a fine group that stood about the table to drink the new year in. By far the handsomest and most distinguished of that company was a woman no longer young, but beautiful in age, Helena Mojeska. She looked a woman of another race and another period, no less queenly than when I had seen her in Chicago as Marie Stuart and as Catherine in Henry VIII. I remember how, when Oswald asked her to propose a toast, she put out her long arm, lifted her glass, and looking into the blur of the candlelight with a grave face, said, To my country. As she was not playing, she had come early, some time before the others, bringing with her a young Polish woman who was singing at the opera that winter. I had an opportunity to watch Mojeska as she sat talking to Myra and Esther Sinclair. Miss Sinclair had once played in her company, when the other guests began to arrive, and Myra was called away, she sat by the fire in a high-backed chair, her head resting lightly on her hand, her beautiful face half in shadow. How well I remember those long, beautifully modeled hands with so much humanity in them. They were worldly indeed, but fashioned for a nobler worldliness than ours, hands to hold a scepter or a chalice or, by courtesy, a sword. The party did not last long, but it was a whirl of high spirits. Everybody was hungry and thirsty. There was a great deal of talk about Sarah Bernhardt's Hamlet, which had been running all week and had aroused hot controversy, and about Jean de Resque's return to the Metropolitan that night, after a long illness in London. By two o'clock every one had gone but the two Polish ladies. Mojeska, after she put on her long cloak, went to the window, drew back the plum-colored curtains, and looked out. "'See, Myra,' she said with that Slav accent she never lost, though she read English first so beautifully. "'The square is quite white with moonlight, and how still all the city is, how still!' she turned to her friend. "'Emilia, I think you must sing something.' 
Something old, yes, from Norma. She hummed a familiar air under her breath and looked about for a chair. Oswald brought one. Thank you, and we might have less light, might we not? He turned off the lights. She sat by the window, half draped in her cloak, the moonlight falling across her knees. Her friend went to the piano and commenced the Costa Diva aria, which begins so like the quivering of moonbeams on the water. It was the first air on our old music box at home, but I had never heard it sung, and I have never heard it sung so beautifully since. I remember Oswald standing like a statue behind Madame Mojeska's chair, and Myra crouching low beside the singer, her head in both hands, while the song grew and blossomed like a great emotion. When it stopped, nobody said anything beyond a low goodbye. Majeska again drew her cloak around her, and Oswald took them down to their carriage. Aunt Lydia and I followed, and as we crossed the square we saw their cab going up the avenue. For many years I associated Mrs. Henshaw with that music, thought of that aria as being mysteriously related to something in her nature that one rarely saw, but nearly always felt a compelling, passionate, overmastering something for which I had no name, but which was audible, visible in the air that night as she sat crouching in the shadow. When I wanted to recall powerfully that hidden richness in her, I had only to close my eyes and sing to myself, Casta Diva, Casta Diva. End of Part 1, Section 5